yesterday to write an eye. It's Wednesday, November 17th, 2021, and this is KBIA's Views of the News. Our weekly roundtable on media behaviors comes to you from the Futures Lab studio at the Reynolds Journalism Institute. I'm Amy Simons, and here with me are my colleagues, Kathy Kiley and Ernest Perry. On our program this week, a thank you from Pope Francis to journalists who helped uncover the sexual abuse scandal in the Catholic Church. Localizing the climate change crisis in the glass, at the Glasgow Climate Summit and... So Taylor Swift re-released her popular album Red late last week. The reason why? To regain the rights to her music. I'll explain a little bit more as we get deeper into today's show. But first, Danny Fenister is back home on U.S. soil, released from a Myanmar prison three days after a judge there sentenced him to 11 years on a series of charges, including incitement and visa violations. This all seemed to have happened very quickly because the situation seemed pretty bleak on Friday. Yeah, it looks like this was um, thanks to an intervention that was quite controversial for a while um, by Bill Richardson um, and a former diplomat, top diplomat for the United States, um, who has a knack for getting hostages out of uh, tough situations. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Uh, Kenneth Bay, Otto Warmbier, even Laura Ling and Yuna Lee all coming out of North Korea. How did his involvement come into play here? Well, um, he had visited Myanmar, and interestingly, a day or two before this great news that Fenster was released, uh, the New York Times had a really tough story about Richardson uh, calling into question the appropriateness of his making this visit. He had meetings with some of the top uh, officials in Myanmar who, of course, have uh, cracked down on martial law, have jailed a lot of journalists, mm -hmm. not just an American. And so there's a, this is one of those really tough dilemmas where how much do you engage with the bad guys? And um, Richardson has had success doing this before, and he seemed to have come away empty. It looked like he just gave uh, the Myanmar officials a photo op, and then lo and behold, two or three days later, this uh, wonderful news. Uh, so it, it really is, I think, um, a case study in... Um, how gray diplomacy can be, that how many shades of gray there are, and um, how hard it is, uh, how many moral dilemmas there are uh, when you're dealing with dictators and thugs. Yeah, I mean, when you when you sort of look at it, it's one of those. You know, I looked at several stories, and if you pull them all together, it seems to me it's one of those classic. Bill Richardson, there's something there, but in order to be able to figure out what it is, I gotta have, I gotta be on the ground. And I think that's the way this sort of played out was, you know, don't really know what I'm going to be able to accomplish, but there's the possibility that there'll be something there that's going to work out for, for, for someone in, in a good way, and it, and it happened to be this. So you had mentioned that there are um, lots of journalists, hundreds if not more, who are jailed right now in Myanmar. This was not just Danny Fenster. What is the state of, you know, we were talking a lot about Myanmar a few months ago, about a year ago. What's the state of what's happening there now? Well, it's interesting. Reporters Without Borders um, calculates that uh, things have gotten so bad so fast in Myanmar that they think Myanmar is on pace to lap 
Saudi Arabia and North Korea in terms of its abuse of journalists. So I think their count was 50-some journalists detained in the last four months. Um, so, uh, um, and it, it's, uh, this is obviously, this is a, a dictatorship, just to remind people that um, kept uh, its Nobel Prize laureate, former president, in, in hostage for many years, kind of let her out. She got in trouble for uh, seeming to be compliant in, a, in an ethnic cleansing. And now she's back in uh, house arrest. So, I, you know, this is a country that's just been troubled uh, for many, many years. And uh, it looks like they are reacting. They opened up a little bit, weren't too happy with how that went. And now they're really cracking down. And I think this is a, you know, so it's a real dilemma. I can see why people were upset that uh, that Richardson would take these meetings. Um, on the other hand, if you're Danny Fenster and his family, uh, you can't argue with the result. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, they, you know, he, and when you look at what he was charged with, I mean, he was charged with something that uh, supposedly occurred at a publication that he was working at six months prior to the coup. Uh, and and so then then all of a sudden when they start cracking down on all the journalists he sort of got swept up in 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 the mass and because he's an American and the fact that the United States was pushing and continues to push very hard against that that regime that just made it sort of a a, a golden opportunity for the Myanmar and I'm sure that's yeah. why they kept him absolutely, because it absolutely. gave them that opportunity it was an end you know they could get the United States government to try to negotiate now I think the good thing is. Richardson is not a current official, mm -hmm. right. and I'm sure that was part of the calculation. He is not part of the Biden administration, so uh, it's it's one step below. Uh, you know, you didn't actually have a current administration official going to make this negotiation. Right. So reporting, especially abroad, is often a dangerous and thankless job. So to have one of the world's most powerful men acknowledge and thank journalists is kind of a big deal. Saturday, Pope Francis spoke at a ceremony honoring two journalists, one from Reuters and one from Mexico's Noticieros Televisa, who spent their careers covering the Vatican. I'm grateful to you for the effort you make to tell the truth, the diversity of approaches, of style, of points of view linked to different cultures or religious affiliations is also a richness in information. I also thank you for what you tell us about what is wrong in the church, for helping us not to sweep it under the carpet, and for the voice you have given to the victims of abuse. So, what's notable to me about this is not only the message, but what it represents, because there's a speed and, and a rapidity that's come in here that we haven't seen from other popes. No, absolutely. I mean, he, he took a lot of flack early uh, in his papacy because he didn't come right out and acknowledge it. And recently he's been very open about not only what was what's what's been going on, but also in his actions of dealing with more recent, like the situation in France right now, they've, they've, they've found out there's a scandal there and dealing with that head on. So that's that's part of it. But what I think is unique here is that he, he's acknowledging the church, he being the church, acknowledging for the first time that journalists played a huge role in exposing what has been going, what had been going on for dec for decades. So I think that's what makes this unique. Yeah, and he took what could have been just a uh, pro forma 
uh, ceremony to honor and photo two, op. Yeah, right, right. two longtime journalists. Yeah. And made this just extraordinary statement. You know, I shared it with my students, and journalists have been sharing it on Twitter for the whole week. It's just remarkable. And, you know, I thought uh, his his statements about what journalism stands for, they're right up there as far as I'm concerned with Walter Williams. I mean, it's really amazing. Uh, as Ryan Famulin or one of our colleagues said, this guy must have written for his high school newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but it's amazing. And one of the things he said that struck me is he said a journalist's job is to be touched by and even wounded by the stories we tell. And that really made me think about another colleague, Robert Green, who has just released a movie, a documentary about some of the victims of the church abuse. Right. And you really do get the sense of to be a documentary journalist is to be so involved with these victims that you too are wounded by it. And and I, I thought that was just a remarkable statement by the Pope, but clearly a very deliberate effort to acknowledge what you said, the role of journalism and exposing the corruption. Yeah, I mean, if you church. if you really go back and think about it, I mean, not just uh, you know the the two journalists that were, that, mm -hmm. that that he he sort of that he praised. I mean, the, the but two also, that were there, I'm thinking of the spotlight. Right, spotlight, no, that's of exactly course. that's yeah. what I'm thinking. That's exactly what I was thinking yeah. about was you know what the Boston Globe did mm -hmm. and, and Spotlight and and the fact that think about when that first came out and how the the church. Push back against the Boston Globe and and the reporters vehemently challenging what what they had discovered in terms of the, in, in their reporting and what they exposed and now we've we've seen since then all of these other uh, exposés about what's happened uh, within the church. Yeah, this is a big this is big for journalism. I mean, this has been such a big couple of months because to have two journalists win the Nobel Peace Prize and followed by this really remarkable statement. Um, from one of the great religious leaders uh, of the world. I think, um, to me, what it says is that people are really beginning to understand now that journalism is under threat, as mm -hmm. we've talked about uh, so many times here, that um, how important it is. And maybe that'll have an impact. I hope so. So he's not only the leader of the church. He is also a diplomatic leader mm -hmm. in the Vatican as well. And he, he's the leader of that micronation. What message is he also sending to other world leaders as we talk about threats to press freedom in Myanmar or as we talked about it last week in Ukraine? What's that message, too, to other world leaders? Be big enough to be able to handle criticism. I mean, that's what he's talking about. He heads the church. We were big enough to handle the criticism from the press. Yeah. So last week, the Columbia Journalism Review's John Alsop reported from the uh, COP26 Climate Summit in Glasgow, Scotland, and he likened it to being at the center of the news universe as leaders and journalists from more than 200 countries convened to talk about one of our most urgent global crises. You probably saw the stories in the local and national news media. Another headline on a homepage or another 30-second voiceover on the news. But there were some publications that deserve a nod for their work done to truly localize this international story. Now, chief among those, Ernest, was the Houston Chronicle, a paper yeah. that you once worked at, which did a really nice job detailing what Texans could be doing, what could they could be taking from this in terms of rethinking the cattle industry, the oil industry, 
how we drive our what cars we purchase and how we fuel those. Yeah, I mean they they sent a, the team of reporters. They've they worked on stories prior to, and they continue to work on stories. And I, I think a lot of it is being driven uh, by the fact that. Texas and that part of Texas is dealing with climate change right now. I mean, they have had a series of, sto- of, of storms mm-hmm. that have gone through my hometown and through that area where when I was growing up, if, if, if a hurricane came through a tropical storm, it just moved straight through and kept going. Now those storms are starting to just sit and dump rain day after day after day. And the fact that you have sea level has is, is fallen and you've had these storms that comes come through it is it is created Plus a, the freeze a, the, 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 the freeze, freeze yes, and the, yes. the power outage uh, absolutely so they're getting it all over and and the heat that they they normally deal with is even hotter and and so the extremes, the extremes that, that continue are to hit. hugely yeah. extreme and you have a publication that has made an effort to say look we're going to talk about climate change and what it means not only in terms of how we live our lives, but how we, you know, what does it mean to our agriculture? What does it mean to our businesses? What does it mean to what we consider to be our primary way in which to to generate revenue for the state? Well, in in Texas specifically, beef, cattle, and 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 oil oil Oil. drive the economy. Well, I think the other thing that's worth noting is the Columbia Journalism Review is a leader in a really interesting effort called Covering Climate Now. And it is an effort to bring together uh, journalism groups, news organizations, to really go deep on this subject and to really commit to the subject, which is something I don't think you would have seen news organizations doing. It's too borderline advocacy. Mm-hmm up until a few years ago. So I think it, it's a real sea change uh, in journalism, uh, but a number of organizations are just saying, this is too big a deal, we've really got to commit to doing the kinds of stories uh, that the Houston Chronicle did. Right, absolutely. You're gonna start seeing a lot of that up and down the Mississippi uh, River Basin because of the ag and water desk that's, that's housed here at the School of Journalism. So you're talking about news organizations from his, from Minnesota all the way down to Louisiana along the basin that are really gonna start uh, paying attention to not how climate change has had an impact, how is, what kind of impact that's had on that, on that major waterway both from an agricultural standpoint, but as well as from an environmental standpoint. So not every news organization is going to have the resources that the Chronicle may have had to be able to go to Glasgow or to localize this. What other ways could we have seen, even with our news organizations here in mid-Missouri, to have more creatively covered this issue over the course of the last 10 days to bring uh, an awareness or a greater understanding of the importance of what was happening in Glasgow. To me, I think it's the localization of it. You know, how 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 is it being impacted in your particular neighborhood? How is it being impacted in your city? Uh, what is what does climate mean? I mean, think about it. I mean, yesterday we were in the seventies. Now we're we're headed into the forties. I saw I mean, my window open and I, mean, I heard a neighbor that had the air conditioning. Right. I mean, then we're talking about. Drastic shifts mm-hmm. in temperature, drastic shifts in, in the type of precipitation that we get. I mean, that has a huge impact on agriculture, but it also has an impact on the infrastructure. I mean, you know, just passed and, and the president signed this huge infrastructure bill. I mean, 
part of that is how do you how do you create a new infrastructure to deal with the kind of climate that we have right now? And that's those are yeah, local here stories. Yeah, the levees are a big story. I mean, we had that uh, huge freak rainstorm um, a couple months ago uh, that caused enormous flooding here. Um, and our uh, our chief meteorologist at KOMU, Kenton Jewicki, I've heard him say what's interesting about Missouri is the nighttime temperatures are going up. It's not so much that the daytime temperatures are spiking, but we're having warmer nights. And that has all kinds of implications for people who don't have air conditioning. So I think I think people are noticing, and I think it's incumbent upon journalists to present the information to them about, here's what's happening, and it's happening in real time. We're not talking about climate change in the distance anymore. This is, this is no. how climate change it has. It's having an impact right now. Okay. If you were to pick one angle, Kathy, that could have been plucked locally here in the last week? What might it have been? I realize I'm putting you on the spot. I would say, I would say the infrastructure. I agree with Ernest. I think the levees, um, you know, especially in an area like this one uh, where we have so many waterways, um, and I think it has a huge impact on, uh, you know, everything from people who ride on the bike trail mm -hmm. to uh, farmers, yeah. uh, which is a huge part of our economy. So one that I was thinking of just kind of quickly, and I could be totally off base here, but I'm thinking about one of those articles that's on our links blog about um, movement towards electric cars and one of the parts of the agreement. And driving around Columbia, I'm a high V shopper, and parking at the high V, at least on West Broadway in Columbia, has been really difficult for the last few months because they're in the process, and they're doing this at a couple of the high Vs, of installing Tesla charging stations. Right. And even just kind of the effects of what that's even going to start to look like because we're so used to seeing gas stations everywhere. And sure, we've had electric charging stations in town, but they've kind of been hidden back behind Menards. That yep. um, Now it's front and center and it's right in front of our everyday grocery stores. This is a part of life now. Well, you're seeing more and more cars just in our area. Plus, yeah. you know, we're between St. Louis and Kansas City. So this is a prime area to have those kinds of charging stations as people are utilizing I-70 uh, going uh, going across the state. You know, you, you're going to need a place to, to charge those electric cars, and why not here? Okay. So I want to talk about a big retraction from the Washington Post. Friday, executive editor Sally Busby said the paper could no longer stand by the accuracy of parts of stories it published in March 2017. And then in February 2019, that identified a Belarusian American businessman as a key source in the Steele dossier. It had identified Sergey Milian as Source D, an unnamed person who passed on some of those most salacious allegations that are in that document to its principal author, a British intelligence officer. Now, this is a most unusual effort, uh, most unusual move to edit and to repost the stories. What led Busby and the Post editors to make that decision? Well, I mean, this has been a fraught story from the very beginning. Um, you know, it's a highly political story that broke in the middle of a campaign. Uh, it's the kind of story that uh, back in the day, pre-internet, might not have even run before a campaign. So uh, this is one of those examples of speed kills. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and so I think, uh, to me, they're just kind of cleaning up the mess. 
And I agree with you, it's highly unusual, but I think it's another sign of the internet times because this isn't just a story that's now lining somebody's birdcage. I mean, it's, it's out there on the internet, it exists, and I think so policies, newspaper policies, it's not enough to just issue a correction because the story's still out yeah, there. Yes, right. Uh, so, so this is gonna alter the way we handle mistakes, I think, in the, in the you future. Know, I, think it's, I think it's already altered, not just how we handle mistakes, but also the way in which news organizations are, are, are putting together stories now. I mean, if you look at that particular uh, story, the steel dossier, yeah. and now you look at what's been done on Facebook mm-hmm. and what was done in the Pandora Papers, the much different way of sourcing, much different way of verifying information, making sure that it's accurate, cross-checking, well, and then and then putting it and out so there. so how much of that is a lesson learned from this very specific scenario? Because really, the Steele dossier is that wedge issue that led to so much of the the acrimony and and the the infighting between President Trump in the media. No, I mean it, I, I think it's important. It's important for for journalists who who are who are working to 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 sort of combat misinformation and disinformation to make sure that the work that you're doing is accurate, yeah. so that you don't become uh, one of not just a target but also an example by either the left or the right or, or whatever you know persuasion you want to go uh, as to be used as fodder. To, to, to basically go after journalists, go after enemies, that sort of thing. And, and the Steele dossier is a perfect example of what happens when you don't do that and how you your reputation can be damaged and how you can be used uh, as in misinformation and disinformation. So as you might imagine, Fox News Channel has really latched on to the fact that the Washington Post has done this and that no other organiza- media organizations have yet to retract or to walk back their reporting um, specifically pulling a line from a piece that Sarah Fisher wrote in Axios calling this the media's big fail. Do you think, Kathy, if you were to have to put on your prediction hat, are we going to see others following in the Washington Post lead and revisiting this? I kind of doubt it. I mean, okay. I think it depends on what they printed. And I'd have to go back and look. And honestly, you know, this story, I always thought it was... Um, I never paid that much attention to it because I thought it was so incredulous. Mm -hmm. You know, it is a classic example of what we talk about in media literacy. If it sounds too good to be true, it it probably probably is. is. And so it was just, I mean, I think the failure of judgment... In, in printing that, and then also then, of course, everybody piled on. Right. You know, as soon as one, and I can't even remember who was first, but I think it, it was, was an BuzzFeed. Online, BuzzFeed, BuzzFeed was first. That's right. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Um, and, to, and then everybody had to run after them. And really, this is something that we in the media, the professional media, have got to get a grip and say, what distinguishes us from crazy bloggers? Right. It's our sense of professionalism and our willingness to check things out. And if we're not going to do that and go running right after crazy bloggers or people who are, sorry, BuzzFeed, you do a lot of great in, great work, but, uh, you know, too much going after clickbait. Right. Then, you know, the, then the trust in media is only going to plummet further. So I think we, we really have to sort of put the brakes on here and say what distinguishes us it's that we take our time and we correct our mistakes and so good for sally busby for correcting your mistakes because that's what i tell people all the time if you want to see a reliable source 
look for a source that has a correction section. And you know, there is no statute of limitations on a correction. Uh, sorry. Growing up in Illinois, I thought that every state required Holocaust and genocide education in schools. It wasn't until I was in my late 30s and living here in Missouri that I learned how uncommon that really was. Well, that state is about to be the first in another curricular area, one I think the three of us can very easily get behind, media literacy. Starting next school year, high schools in Illinois will provide lessons uh, to help students learn the purpose of media messages, how those messages are made, how the media influences behavior, which points of view are included, the importance of consuming multi, uh, multiple media sources as well. Can I get a woohoo? <laughs> if, if they're able to pull it off, it would be great. I, I, my, I, this is something that's long overdue. My fear is that it's going to get politicized. Well, uh, and it already has yeah. been. There are members of the state legislature who are saying that this is really an anti-conservative, anti-Trump effort to indoctrinate students while still in school, not necessarily about providing information on information. Yeah. And I mean, and it all boils down to basically what we were just talking about a minute ago. When you, when you say the media, mm -hmm. uh, then all of a sudden, you know, you have certain certain persuasions that will go in one direction or the other and the, and and now you've got the the sort of well you're not teaching it the way I would teach it uh, kind of of, of uh, environment going on and that, that's my fear is that this is going to wind up in that same vein Illinois may be able to get away with it and be able to do it and do it effectively mm -hmm. whether or not it's going to move across the country that that's going to be pretty difficult especially in a lot of states that really truly believe that the media is is liberal in whatever shape and form that it happens to come out in. Well, I happened to have been uh, in St. Louis last week uh, doing a program on media literacy at a high school there with uh, Julie Smith, who teaches at Webster University and who is a uh, big advocate of uh, media literacy and belongs to the National Association uh, on media of Media Literacy Educators. And she told me she's working with her state representative to try to introduce a similar bill in Missouri. So we'll see. We'll see. Okay, then. Before we go, it was a big week for Taylor Swift fans. A new album last week, a short film, and an appearance on Saturday Night Live. But wait, what made all of that really noteworthy for this program, the three of us at least, I don't know about you, Kathy, mm -hmm. Ernest and I have agreed we're not exactly Taylor Swift fans, but... It was the why behind the re-release of that album, Red. And this was actually her way of reclaiming the rights to songs that had been released back in 2012 when she wasn't so famous, she wasn't the big name she is today, and kind of sort of gave away the house when signing that first record deal. Yeah, which is so typical of a young artist. But I think what's really interesting now is the way the media landscape has changed uh, for musicians is that they don't, if especially when they reach the level she has, they don't have to rely on those big companies and big distributors anymore. And I think that's what she's doing here is saying, I want my independence. I want my uh, ability to control my own uh, corpus of work, and uh, I thought it was a really interesting stratagem. No, I think it was it, it was very interesting. I mean, I, I was thinking about it in in the context of 
of artists like Michael Jackson mm-hmm. and Prince. And or my who, dad even mentioned to me yesterday, he heard somebody talking about this on Sirius XM, that the Beatles catalog the Beatles, is the Beatles catalog, in this Yes, as well. absolutely. So, I mean, artists who are basic, who, who early on said, look, we want to own our music. Uh, regardless of what contracts we sign with, 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 with labels and that sort of thing. And this is sort of another iteration of that in which she says, I'm not just going to own what I do now. I'm going to go back and get what I did previously as well. And, and now I'm going to be in charge of how my, how my music and how my image and how my brand is, is distributed, how it is, how it is played that sort of thing. And I think that's really important for for artists who are coming up to understand the, the what does it mean when you create your music and what is the business side of that and, and how do you control that? It's kind of an interesting thing and it's kind of fun to watch if only because you're kind of watching the big business kind of sort of have it handed back right, to which them. always was kind of the big dog in the room and now i think the artists are getting a lot more control and independence and, a and lot i think more that's savvy. now obviously not a an unknown artist but i think the fact that people like taylor swift are using that power to uh, take back control might make ultimately trickle down and make a difference in how those big companies deal with the younger artists. Right. Okay, well, we are pretty much out of time for this week. I'd like to thank you for spending the last half hour with us. You can read more about the topics we talked about today on our links blog. That's under both the programs and podcast tabs at kbia.org. We're also available wherever you get your podcast downloads, including iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle there is at views on KBIA. These are all great ways to watch and listen to our program again. Leave us comments, questions, see what we'll be talking about next time, and more. Our thanks to RJI's Travis McMillan for directing the show, Aaron Hay for handling the audio, and Tim Pilcher for our original theme music. I'm Amy Simons.